of the, the theological method of coming up with theology. And so, kind of building on that, I'm going to just kind of read this introductory question to you as we start the doctrine of bibliology, study of the Bible. Literally meaning book in Latin, the Bible is far and away the bestseller of all history. It's been more widely dispersed and translated into more languages than any other. Some have contended that this compilation of 66 books is essentially a human work, an account of man's religious strivings toward an encounter with God. Uh, strivings toward an encounter with God. Yet the first four words reveal far, far more. In the beginning, God. The Bible is God's autobiography. He is the centerpiece. So why must a study of theology begin with bibliology, the study of the Bible? So why, does, why should this be the very first topic? We can only study God through God's word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can only study God through God's word. I mean, how is the Bible regarded? Like, if you were to talk to your neighbors, college students, ask them, what do you think of the Bible? I mean, what would be some general responses that would kind of percolate out? Maybe like a history book. Okay. A history book. There's some other impressions that people might have of the Bible, good or bad. I think some people, like, <clears throat> I had a friend that posted some stuff on Facebook, and Marlon and I responded to it because she believes that some of it can be true, but not all of it. So she would want to go back and look at the scrolls and make sure, you know, so they want, they know that some of it's true, but they may not believe all of it's true, so okay. they want proof that it's true. Okay, so some people have... Um, Maybe some doubts about all of scripture. Some of it's true, but don't know which parts. Yeah. Other things? Other thoughts? I mean, it's seen as an ancient book of mythology. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of other ancient books of mythology. Yeah. People see it as outdated. Outdated? Yeah, specifically in regards to what? Ethics, yeah. Back when I was a young Christian, it used to be in regards to science. <coughs> but now it's really in regards to, to ethics. It can't be true because it goes against certain things. Yeah, and I think some people kind of see the Bible as um, like chicken soup for the soul. Something that gives you like a word of encouragement. Like you don't need to make sense of it as long as you just kind of hear it. So there's... Yeah, so I think even that is far, like a lot of people do have a reverence for the Bible. You know what I'm saying? But they, um, it's a powerful book with powerful words, but they, they just kind of leave it on the shelf. Yeah, and there's they don't have to read it. Yeah, there's like a, a common theme of, um, regardless of like the origins and truthfulness, it's like there's a lack of, uh, it doesn't really have any divine authority my life like, uh, whether or not which parts are true mm -hmm. or not those parts are helpful that's up to the reader yeah sometimes whether you choose to mm -hmm. follow the Bible or whether you choose to believe in the Bible is up to 
individuals. Yeah, and I think there's a, people will say, the Bible is inspirational, not necessarily inspired. So where it inspires me is inspired. Does that make sense? So what is its impact on me? How does it make me feel and everything? So, I mean, it is popular, but people have a regard for it, so what kind? So when we look at, you know, just this whole study of, like, right, systematic theology, right? You know, systematic theology is really built on the, on the foundation of biblical theology, right? Now, I'm using the words I used last week. What's meant by systematic theology? Somebody want to try to furnish me with a definition? Jason, what do you think? Um, a systematic approach to theology. Yeah. Grouping it, blocking it. Yeah. In different categories, right? So the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of end times, the doctrine of salvation. Okay? Then what's biblical theology? Scott, you want to give it a shot? Biblical yeah, theology? Yeah, uh, I can't remember there was another word that was kind of synonymous, like almost exegetical. Exegetical, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. So it's like the theology that you gain from studying the text and as it presents itself, not yeah. necessarily, it, it speaks to different topics. And different yeah, so you, let's say you look up what's called um, Pauline theology, or Pauline theology, I'm not, I've heard it pronounced both ways. If you, you look at everything that Paul wrote, and then you kind of group it, what did Paul teach about Christ? What did he teach about salvation? What did he teach about the Holy Spirit? Um, Lucan theology, what did Luke teach about those topics? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So as a way of kind of like within these texts, what, what's been explicitly taught. And then kind of the, what undergirds all of that is something called exegetical theology, right? That's the theology that we get from the text itself, okay? So, and I would even say the foundation here would be, yep, exegetical theology that you know, that you can't necessarily take systematic theology and overrule your uh, exegetical theology. You know, the conclusions we make about individual text are the building blocks that form this, right, that form this. So it makes sense that when we study systematic theology, it's like, well, where are we getting our information about God, right? How do we know what we believe about God is true? And the way we know um, about God is what does he reveal to us? Does that make sense? And so that, when you look at um, biblical theology, it's good to have maybe some general categories of how God reveals himself to us. And there's, there's two ways, okay? The first way is general revelation, okay? General revelation. And, and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I think this is a great passage that talks about general revelation, Uh, somebody want to read that for me? Romans 1 what? Uh, 18 through 21. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible, of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature has, has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Okay. So notice the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So he's talking about there is what's called a general revelation. Okay, there's truths about God that are available for the general public. Okay, everybody can look at just creation and conclude that there is a creator. Right, that's the argument that he's making here. I mean, I've kind of used this illustration before. Like you go hiking to you know the top of one of you know, the mountains in Colorado, and at the topmost rock you see a stack of, you know, five rocks on top of each other, right? What would you conclude about those stacks of rocks? Right, that somebody stacked them. Okay, and that's a very basic structure, right? You know, a two-year-old could have done that. But it's clear that that didn't happen by itself. So what Paul is saying is that there are certain things about, when you just look around, it's obvious that there is a creator. Right? And the reason why people don't believe that is they're actually suppressing that. They're saying, no, we don't, we don't believe that, we don't embrace that. And they'll worship something that they create instead of understanding that there's a greater creator. Okay? So this would be general revelation. And it's just, it's just stating the obvious. You look around, it's clear that there is a God. And um, so that is one category of revelation. Okay, the second category is called special revelation. Okay, that is revelation that um, you know comes from God in some specialized uh, way. So, like the Old Testament prophets spoke the very words of God. In fact, another you can kind of see a distinction here in uh, Romans ten. Uh, somebody want to read Romans ten fourteen through seventeen? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay. But yeah, that's good. So it's interesting, with general revelation, uh, Paul argues that everyone knows there's a creator, and they all reject him, and that by itself is, is reason that God is justified in condemning them, right? But he says here that you would have, have to have like a specific knowledge of Christ to be saved. You can't be saved without a specific knowledge of Christ. So special revelation is basically the knowledge of Christ, the gospel that you can't pick up from nature. Does that make sense? So when we talk about um, bibliology, 
the Bible is a book of special revelation. You know, it's truths about God that can only be dis- there are truths about God that can only be discerned from the Bible. Does that make sense? So now, why is it important to keep general revelation and special revelation in separate categories? It's important not to confuse the two. Scott, want to give a shot? I'm I'm thinking about, um, like, I think part of the general revelation would be the conscience as well. Yeah, that's also part of it. And so uh, there's a sense in which God gives us that general revelation of Mm -hmm. this is something I ought to do, to love my children Mm -hmm. and care for them. I ought not to, you know, you feel guilt, you feel conviction, but that conscience can be warped and seared, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. that, that it's a, it can be changed and altered, misinterpreted much. Yeah. Right? So we need the, the clear, the special revelation to yeah. help understand, clarify, yeah. guide the, yeah. what God has generally revealed in our hearts. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Just gonna say when God wants to be most clear, He uses words. Yeah. So I mean, that's why we have to pay most close attention to the words because that's where He's explaining Himself. Yeah. When He wants to be most clear, He uses words. Lauren. I think it also helps us to just keep in mind that there are different ways that God chooses to reveal Himself, and yeah, that's okay and good. And he's sovereign, so that that's His choice. Like. But we, we have to understand there are different ways that he chooses to reveal himself. Yeah. And be okay with it. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes people um, will look at this category of general revelation. And, and make it um, more comprehensive than it needs to be. Does that make sense? General revelation has a specific purpose, which is to keep people accountable. Um, what it doesn't mean is that, and it does mean that God's truth is all truth. All truth is God's truth. But you can't necessarily build a theology off of general revelation that is sufficient to save a soul. Right? You have to have specific revelation. And that's where, like, the Bible um, is in direct competition with other books that claim to be special revelation. Right, like the Quran, uh, the Book of Mormon, uh, to, to name a few. Okay, so when we look at the second category, now special revelation is how does God articulate Himself, reveal Himself with words, you know, to His creation. And so the word that we use is inspired, right, or inspiration. And the definition of that is God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of the original writings. Okay, so a couple of things to kind of note there. Why do you think we have in the words of the original writings? Why is that important, Jason? Well, we have a transition of languages, and so sometimes the translations can miss that yeah. original intent. Yeah. Or as time progresses, what one word meant 50 okay. years ago 
changes yeah. now. Yeah, so this does not teach that the King James Bible is inspired. Okay, very important to remember that the King James Bible is not inspired. It is a translation of the inspired text. You following that? And what was inspired was what Paul, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, right? What he wrote down in that original letter is inspired. Now, is it true that since then, you know, we've had to do some reconstruction to get what he originally inspired, right? And we went through that in our Bible study mm -hmm. class, right? Remember how we kind of talked about textual criticism and how when you kind of compare manuscripts? Yeah, we've been able to reconstruct over 99% of the New Testament without a problem. It's pretty easy. So it's that, you know, those are the portions of inspired scripture, okay? The English Standard Version is not inspired. It's a translation of the inspired scripture, okay? Does that make sense? And then I think the, uh, you know, the other thing that's kind of interesting is this idea of, yep, yeah, in inspired, is this word, Inspired is where we get the word spirit. And in the Hebrew, uh, the word for spirit and breath are actually the same word. So when uh, God breathed into Adam, right? Adam received his spirit. And so when you, when you hear me, what you're hearing right now is modulated breath, right? If I'm in space, I couldn't speak. I, I, be frozen and dead in a, in a moment. But that aside, right, with no air and no breath, you can't speak. And so the idea is, you know, the Bible is the breath of God. It comes out of God. It's God's modulated breath. It's, it's God's word and how he reveals himself. Does that make sense? So um, now there's a few other terms that kind of uh, help us understand what's meant. It's verbal plenary inspiration. So plenary means not in part, but the whole. So remember how Darla brought up that her friend thinks that some of the Bible is inspired, but not all of it? That is non-plenary information, script, non-plenary revelation, right? So we're saying like the whole Bible, all 66 books are inspired. And then verbal extends to words and ideas. So it's the totality of the Bible that when we read the Bible, it's inerrant, infallible, it's the very word of God, the whole thing, okay? Now why is it important for us to take the whole Bible as inspired? What's the problem with just taking part of it as inspired? How do you determine what is inspired and what isn't inspired? Yeah. Where do you set those gauges? Okay. It's a view above the word determining what is or isn't true. Yeah. Like if you said the Bible is, you know, if the whole Bible's not inspired, then you'd have to say there's mistakes in it. There's things that don't belong in it. And who makes that determination, right? So, so to deny verbal plenary information is basically to deny the authority of the Bible. Does that make sense? All right, so going to the next page, we'll look at uh, the main passage that supports these ideas, the main two.
Uh, somebody want to read 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 through 17. Ryan, you want to get that? Yeah. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay. So literally, God breathed, also inspired. This word offers a sense of words coming directly from the mouth of God. Nearly 4,000 times in the Old Testament, you will find words like the Lord spoke, the Lord commanded, thus saith the Lord, the Lord said. Okay, so that's a pretty, I mean, thus saith the Lord, right? The God of the universe speaking. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Even through Leviticus. I do my quiet times in Leviticus today. I read about leprosies and, and diseases today. So it wasn't the most fruitful quiet time I, I but I had some strange itches after I read the Bible. I don't know why. <laughs> then you have Second Peter 1, 20-21. Who wants to read that one? Andrew, want to read that? But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Yeah, and this uh, word, move, is also used in Acts twenty-seven fifteen. That's when Paul was on a ship bound to Rome, and it was being driven along by the wind. And uh, it's really, really kind of fascinating about um, just the imagery of how the Holy Spirit works with men. Now, have any of you guys ever gone sailing? No one? Am I the only one here? You've gone sailing, yeah. Kansas. 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 Well, <laughs> sometimes lakes have, like, I remember, um, like, you have catamarans. Yeah. You know, you might have, like, an ocean yacht. You might have one of those old pirate ships, right? You have different kinds of ships. <laughs> <laughs> Schooners. I don't know what you call those. Well, you, you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, right? <laughs> <laughs> Be honest. <laughs> um, but depending on the ship, right, different ships have different properties as far as you know, we'll be driven along the, the ship and by the wind in different ways, right? And I think if you look at some of the different men, and I'd say even some women, like we have Deborah's, uh, we know that she contributed to some revelation, Miriam did as well. Um, you know, you have different people who are being driven along by the Holy Spirit, like different ships are driven along, Right, and the speed, cargo, all that stuff depends on the ship, but you need the wind to drive it along. So, what are some? Um, so, what are some human characteristics of the Bible? All right. So, the idea is, y'all, you have the Holy Spirit who's kind of driving someone along, but he doesn't necessarily change their personality. There are some cases, right, where it is true dictation, where God spoke to Moses, and Moses is okay. All right, got that down. But then there's other times where the Holy Spirit kind of moves in somebody to write the very words of God. But what are some, I guess, human characteristics that kind of make their way into Scripture? Like, can you guys name the languages? How many languages are in the Bible? We've got three, right? They are? Hebrew, Greek. Hebrew, Greek, and what's the bonus? Huh? Aramaic. And you guys know where to find the Aramaic? In Daniel. Man, good for you. And a little bit of the Gospels. A little bit of the Gospels. 
<laughs> right? So why just those three languages? That's what the author spoke, right? Right? So that would be like a human characteristic. He works with that. And then what about the difference between, let's say, the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke? How would it count? Personality or expressions of thought, like the, the way that, you know, okay, so like God's giving me this idea, but this is how I would express that, like the, yeah. how my personality comes out in that or the way that I would personally express that, yeah. that thought. I don't know. John's like an English teacher, like themes and motifs and, yeah. and um, you know, numbering things. Uh -huh. And um, you get someone like Mark who's just like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, you know. Mm -hmm. Just give it a story, but it's also really well packaged. Yeah. Now, bear with me here, okay? Do you guys know who Ted Kaczynski is? He's the Unabomber. And so basically, he would mail off bombs to people, and they had no idea who he was. He would do it without a trace. And, and do you know how they caught him? He would write letters, and they analyzed his letters and analyzed his writing and were able to connect it to a dissertation he wrote at MIT. And so that's how they traced him back. Because he had a writing style that was unique to him. Isn't that interesting? And so when you look at all, all of us, I mean, we have our own writing styles. Like if we were to turn in blind essays, right, and they're all typewritten, with enough careful research, we could probably figure out who wrote what letter in this in this room. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So e every human author kind of has their own, their own toolkit that they use to communicate. Okay, other things that might be somewhat human? Like David's poetry came out of actual experiences, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. like, I'm in anguish because I'm being chased by, you know, the gang, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, different events that they saw, witnessed, experienced. Different backgrounds. So Paul's background of mm -hmm. you know, religious law changed the way that he wrote. Yeah. Like you look at even some of the covenants that God wrote in the Old Testament, there's something called a suzerain vassal treaty, where there was like a common form that kings um, would covenant with others. And it would kind of mirror that, okay? And so that doesn't make it any less divine, but they borrow some of the forms that humans use to interact with each other. Does that make sense? So that, um, yeah, so the Bible does use human expression and human language. God decided to reveal himself with that convention. Um, but ultimately, who's responsible? for the authorship of scripture. God. Yeah, God is, right? And so kind of going back here, you know, exegetical, we're trying to figure out exactly what the text meant to the original audience, and then we kind of work within the framework, like what was Moses' understanding of this doctrine, or Paul's understanding of this doctrine, right? Because we understand that it was, you know, that, that truth was mediated through uh, a human, but it was the Holy Spirit who was doing the mediatory work so that it was preserved without flaw because ultimately God is the one who wrote it. Does that make sense? 
So um, going back to the second point, or I guess point number four, uh, the authority, the doctrine of sola scriptura. You guys know what that means? Sola scriptura means Scripture alone, there you go. Means that the Bible alone is the infallible rule of faith. The Bible contains all information pertinent to the knowledge of God, salvation, and everything necessary for a life of godliness. No other revelation is needed, and subsequently all other teachings must be evaluated through the lens of Scripture. This important doctrine is the foundation for the authority of the Bible, and it is taught by the Bible itself in the following passage. So, somebody want to read that for me? I know we just read it, but we're going to read it again. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay. So again, do, we got to do a little exegetical theology here. What's meant by the term scripture? What did it mean to Timothy when he said all scripture? Yeah, it'd be at least the Old Testament, right? And he didn't call it the Old Testament at the time, right? It was just the scripture. So, now a cynic might point out that the reference in 2 Timothy refers exclusively to the Old Testament. Thus to say that this passage teaches sola scriptura would make the New Testament superfluous. Here are a few answers to that question. Uh, number one, does that, do you understand? It's like, if it referred to the Old Testament, then how can we say that the New Testament scripture should be included in the general teaching of that passage, general meaning. Um, number one, Paul had already recognized portions of the New Testament as scripture. So somebody want to read 1 Timothy 5.18? For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Okay, then Luke 10, 7. Stay in that house eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Okay. Now, this is very significant, okay? Who wrote First Timothy? Paul did, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And in Second Timothy, Paul is giving a declaration of the inspiration of Scripture, right? Now, we know at the very minimum, Paul believed that the Old Testament Scriptures would be included in that. He makes a reference to that in the immediate context. But it's interesting that Paul also refers to Luke's writing. And that's significant because Luke's not an apostle, right? He refers to Luke's writings as scripture. See that? So what Paul is likely doing is he's emphasizing the nature of scripture more than the canon of scripture. Do you guys know what I mean by the term canon? Canon is a list of official books in the Bible. Okay? If it is scripture, then it's God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. As we will contend, it is the nature of scripture which makes it authoritative. Okay? So all that is scripture. If it's scripture, it has all these categories. Okay? And we can kind of define the extent of that a little bit later on. So what do the phrases adequate and every good work suggest about the sufficiency of scripture. Do Christians need additional knowledge to live a life pleasing to God? Why or why not?
What do you think of those terms? What's the significance of uh, adequate and every good work? Adequate is usually equated with enough. That's uh -huh. I mean, mm -hmm. which doesn't leave room for extra. Yeah. So adequate, a synonym would be sufficient, mm -hmm. right? So the Bible is sufficient for what? Yeah. So you you have all the all that you need if you want to live a life that's pleasing to God. Right? Everything you need to live a life that's pleasing to God is recorded in the scriptures. So is all the revelation that ever existed contained in the Bible? Way they grind? Probably not. Probably not. Okay. Why do you say that? Because there were probably more people that witnessed and probably wrote about stuff. Okay. But you may not have made it into the book. Okay. Somebody want to get uh, John twenty one twenty five. passage right so if you had a I don't know multi-terabyte capable sound recorder and you followed Jesus around everything he would have said right came from mouth of God I mean there's other teaching out there that was not written down but why did John record what he recorded Because that's what was inspired. That's what, well, not, not all the other stuff was inspired, right? But why did John record what he needed? It was adequate. It was adequate, right? Yeah, and so it kind of makes a practical argument. Like, if we had everything that Jesus ever said, you really couldn't write it down in any practical way, right? So he acknowledges that. But he says, what I wrote down for you is enough that you may have eternal life. Okay? So, we know at least with Jesus, at least with Jesus, there is more revelation that's out there that this side of heaven we won't know. But we do have enough so that we can live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Does that make sense? Scott, you look deep in thought. Yeah, I was just thinking uh, just the different saints through time, how they had different leading up to the completion of the revelation. You know, mm -hmm. They had different amounts of access to you know, the special revelation. That's the forming of the yeah. Moses wrote, wrote the first books and the prophets. Yeah. And then, so as those were being compiled, just the differences. And then yeah. even the, it's like, so the disciples, you wonder, you know, okay, were they all there for all the teachings? You know, because mm -hmm. sometimes they're sent out, you know, mm -hmm. so like just, it's just interesting to think about um, <coughs> yeah. the way in which people had 
and and even now, just um, there's the issue of like what how God has revealed Himself, and then how does He spread that message uh, yeah. through His uh, mm-hmm. through His children, through the apostles, through Christ, but yeah, even the people now who don't have revelation. Yeah, we live in pretty privileged times, don't we? I mean, for a millennia and a half, the common man did not have even the ability to read, right? And and if you did have the ability to read, the only Bible that was available to you was in Latin, right? And was a Bible originally written in Latin? So you'd have to do an internal, tra- you'd have to translate a translation to get to the meaning of the Bible. But now, you know, they are able to base a translation off of the original languages. And they did that through the King James Bible, which is honestly an amazing literary work, right? What the King James Bible meant to the history of the English language and to this world. And, um, you know, William Tyndale was kind of the base author of it. And, and, just a linguistic genius, right? So the King James Bible is awesome. Um, but obviously some words change and stuff like that. And But we can read the Bible. and We have multiple translations available. You can find it on the internet. I mean, you can read the whole Bible. I mean, it used to be if a family had one Bible, that was huge, mm-hmm. right? So the fact that Revelation is available to us so widely and so freely, it's... Um, it really is amazing. It really is amazing that God spoke to us and we can hear it. We can read it. Any other thoughts? This is kind of a rabbit trail question, but okay. in the, like, not all revelations are in the canonized scripture, I feel like that could be a verse used to defend, like, why other books are added in different religions. Mm-hmm. So how would you defend that? Like, I guess I'm thinking specifically Catholicism. Okay. So they have additional books than we have. Mm-hmm. And they would consider that also revelation. So how would okay. you... Yeah, I think I'm going to... Let me... I think I'm going to get to that later. Okay. So I'm not going to steal my own thunder <laughs> right now. I'll get to that later. But I think that's a... I mean, that's a very good point. Because not just the Catholic, but, you know, we discovered the Gospel of Thomas. We discover the Gospel of Peter. And if you can actually find the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter online and read some of it, I mean... It's very revealing. Yeah, it's like they weren't necessarily filled with the Holy Spirit, but probably filled with peyote when they wrote it. I mean, it was, it's, it's pretty strange. Um, but some of the Old Testament, you know, like Tobit, Wisdom, Sirach, some of those are a little bit more down to earth. But there's good reasons why we would we have a case to exclude those. Does that make sense? But we'll we'll talk more about that later. Hey Dave. Yeah. So what's the difference between um, revelation and understanding? I'm having a hard time understanding the um, the okay. more revelation, I guess. Okay, revelation is what's revealed. Okay. Understanding is your comprehension of it. Right. So you can read Revelation the book, right? Uh-huh. And not understand it. But that doesn't make Revelation the book any less Revelation. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Okay. But I think you kind of bring up, um, you know, so it's out there, but that doesn't mean that we automatically get it. 
Sure. Okay. And that kind of brings us to our next point, the, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Um, this explains how God helps believers to discern the truth from error. We do not need a man-made institution to unveil the meaning or composition of Scripture. Through the supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit, we can recognize his voice in the pages of the Bible. So here's an example of people who don't understand Scripture. Somebody want to read Matthew uh, 13... 13 through 15, and this is really interesting. Whenever Jesus teaches on the parable of the soils, he always brings it back home here, where he gives a parable, and everyone's just, I don't get it. <laughs> and then he gives a speech, and then he interprets it. Okay, so somebody want to read Matthew 13, 13 through 15. Jason, go ahead. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Okay. So, what's the problem here? Why don't the people understand his parables? It's the heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a sense where in the wise counsel of God, he didn't want Israel to embrace Jesus as the Messiah yet. There was a hardening of the heart. The heart was already hard, but he allowed them to continue to be dull so that the gospel would be sent to the Gentiles and then eventually make its way back to Israel. Okay, So there is a, a, an incapacity within normal men to not believe the scriptures nor see them as true. Another passage, Romans one twenty one. Jordan, want to read that for me? Uh, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, key point there, their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay. Amy, can you get second? Corinthians 4 4. Yeah, it's on top of page 4. In his case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay. Now, according to these passages, why can't men understand the Bible? I didn't allow them to. Yeah, there, there's there's something there's something wrong with them. Yeah, you know, where when they read it, it doesn't click. Now that doesn't mean that they can't understand the general message of it, right? But there's something that's just not clicking for them. So the solution, First uh, Thessalonians one five. Aiden, want to read that for me? For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. OK. 
time. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Kate, you want to read that? For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Okay, and then... A short but sweet but compelling one. Second Corinthians three sixteen. Melanie. Yes. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Okay. So how does one come to the conviction that the scriptures are true? <clears throat> what has to happen? The veil is taken away. The veil is taken away. And when does that happen? When they turn to the Lord. Yeah, when you turn to the Lord, the veil's taken away. Right? And there's many things that happen to somebody. When you're born again, right, you'll, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And, I mean, I, I can testify that when I became a Christian, it was interesting how I was involved in the Christian ministry, so I, I would have my quiet time. You know, I would read the Bible because that's what I was supposed to do. But it was interesting how it just made fresh sense to me when um, I became a Christian. I re remember reading through Romans, and at the time my poor roommate was a Catholic, and I would just say, Chris, listen to this. You know, <laughs> I was just kind of, I mean, everything was just, made, it, everything just clicked and made, made sense to me. You know, there is a, you know, the veil was, was taken away. Um, now, that doesn't mean that I understood it all, but I think when you talk about the, the result, like John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I mean, so what's the difference between recognition and comprehension? What's the difference between recognition and comprehension? We have some new moms here, right? Do your babies understand what you're saying? Do they understand? They might get no, right? And you're such a good girl. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a limit there, but they recognize who's speaking more than they comprehend what's being said. Does that make sense? So when we talk about the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean that you understand everything. But just like a baby understands, that's my mother speaking, uh, a believer understands when they hear scripture, that's God speaking. And I remember, um, uh, I, I'll share the story for, after I read this one. So 1 John 2.27, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it taught you, you abide in him. Now, according to this passage, do you need a teaching authority to understand scripture? Like a, an official answer code, answer key when you read the Bible? 
No, you, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And I remember talking to a guy at my old church, and he became a Christian, and he got involved in the Masons. And he spent time in the Masons, like, mm, this doesn't quite make sense. He did Jehovah Witnesses. That didn't quite make He got, like, went to every single cult, but there was something inside of him where he just thought, this is just not of the Lord. And then he finally settled in on, you know, a Bible teaching church. Like, ah, this, this, this is it. Does that make sense? So what the internal testament of the Holy Spirit does is it just kind of helps you identify that's not the voice of the Lord. That's not God speaking. That's not, okay, that's God speaking. And then from there on out, it's an issue of trying to comprehend it. Does that make sense? So I, I say that because if you're like, man, the Bible doesn't make sense to me, I'm not saying, that's not what he's talking about. Okay, I know this is the word of God, and I'm hoping to make more sense. That's what he's talking about. Does that make sense? So just internal testimony, we're able to believe the Bible, understand the Bible, grow in the word, and discern the truth. So in the words of Nigel Cameron, the scripture seems to be self-attesting. The... It is the divine author of scripture, the Holy Spirit of God, who inspired the writings of that same scripture, who's a final witness. He assures the believer that this canonical scripture is verily the word of God written, that is, God offers his own witness to his word. So there is something supernatural that happens when someone believes because of scripture. You're able to say, this is God's word. I believe it. Okay, any questions? Yeah, and one thing, I, I kind of look at the difference between an AM, FM radio, right? You, you can't really get the, an AM signal on FM is static. You have to kind of change, change the receiver. And when someone becomes a Christian, it's like you become an FM receiver from that point in time on. Okay, but you still, but, and even though you're getting the words and you recognize it, it still takes uh, a while to comprehend it. Okay, so application, read your Bible with fresh appreciation this week. I'll pray, and then we'll continue our worship in other forms. Well, Father, I am grateful for this time to come together and study about your word, and I pray that this will give us a greater heart for your word and love for your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.